It is time to go deeper in God's Word. It's time to engage in truth. Here is Dr. Steve Ford and Pastor John Bornstein. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is Steve Ford, your co-host for today's show, along with Pastor John Bornstein, Senior Pastor at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Well, students of the Bible are familiar with the wedding metaphor used to describe the relationship between God and His people. Today, we would like to do a deep dive into the topic and have titled the broadcast, Jewish Wedding Customs and the Bride of Messiah. Well, why is this topic of importance to us as believers? One, it glorifies God and His love for us. And two, it helps us to remember what is in store for us what Christ has obtained for us. We read in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, this is known as the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Pastor John? Wow. Thank you, Dr. Ford, for that. Uh, We do need to... Always remember to go back and read God's holy word, especially Revelation 19, because that is a loaded chapter (laughs) filled with not only the visual, this powerful, vivid image of the wedding feast with the lamb, but also what happens afterwards. And, you know, the Lord Jesus coming back with King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thigh and on a white horse and with him, the entourage of all of the the saints coming back also on white horses, having been made clean and dressed appropriately for such an occasion. It's such a sight. I I can't wait. We're going to be there. (laughs) We are going to be there. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be there. You can be assured of that. But uh, Dr. Ford, you're right. We have so much to cover in a short period of time. I was just so excited to talk about this today because we have this powerful, vivid imagery the Lord conveys through all of his teachings about this this wedding feast as the backdrop, right? It is constantly the thematic thread that runs throughout all of his teachings, how he is readying the bride to be with him. There are so many pieces of that teaching even found throughout the Gospels that are all woven into this thematic thread. So that's what we want to talk about is Once we understand this, we're going to understand then why we in the New Testament era in the church of Jesus Christ actually partake of communion, eating this little cracker, drinking this juice is a symbolic reminder of the fact that we're betrothed to another, to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it was given, of course, on Passover, but it was instituting the new covenant. And what does all that mean? And all of it is symbolic of the wedding feast. Then we also were baptized. And, and that's part of what happened with the Galilean wedding, the Jewish wedding traditions. Even the rapture itself is completely backdrop. It, it is the basis taught with that imagery in mind. I mean, let me just jump there real quick. I want, I want our, our listener to hear this quite clearly. We're going to get into the feasts of Israel, and we're going to spend some time on that 
Hopefully by this next session, the next time together on the air, we'll talk about the feasts of Israel because we need to understand the plan of God. In the menorah was displayed the plan of God, that you have all of these feasts that always indicated to us the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. So we'll get into what each of those mean. But as you pass the center of the candelabra, which is Christ Jesus, but in this was Pentecost in the middle. And that middle portion was known as the Feast of Weeks. Afterwards, after that count of 50, we look forward into the fall feasts. And the first of those was Rosh Hashanah, known as the Feast of Trumpets. And those trumpets are always very symbolic. We have two types of trumpets in the scripture, the silver trumpets of the salt pinks and the shofar that is very familiar and common amongst the many Bible scholars and their teachings on this. Jonathan Kahn, amongst many others, talk about the power of the shofar it would, and it ushered in worship and the feasts of God. And it was a clarion call to prayer and feasting and humility, even fasting and so forth. So it was a powerful time illustrated in that shofar blowing. It was also symbolic of something new. It was a new year, a new count that would begin. It was a two-day feast, and they'd have to look toward the moon, and they'd have to see when did that begin. It was a two days. Nobody knew the day or the hour unless they were looking up to see the sign, and then they would rush to tell somebody, and they would let the priests know, and they would start the fires, get the altars burning, or at least the lanterns burning to symbolize the feast has begun. They would blow the trumpets seven days between that feast, and then you would have the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur today. And this is the holiest day of the year. And it was the day in which the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, present the altar or the offering on the altar on the Ark of the Covenant as in the first temple or during the tabernacle era, but not in the second temple. We know that it didn't have the Ark of the Covenant there, but they would go into the place of the holiest place on earth and present this offering, the sprinkled offering there to the Lord. And they had to be sanctified. They had to be ready to go into the presence of God. Anyway, we'll get into all of that. But what that symbolizes, many believe, is the day the Lord returns. So there's seven days between it. So the bride's taken up at the Feast of Trumpets, day one. And then there's a seven-day celebration. And then come back with the groom, presented with the groom at the end. That's why the pre-tribulational rapture perspective is so vital to understanding that. We'll get into it. And I understand I'm talking to a, an audience that's maybe mixed on it, thinking, well, there's mid-trib, post-trib, pan-trib. It all just pans <laughs> out in the end, right? But the reality in this is if we understand the feast and especially understand the Galilean Jewish wedding, we will see quite clearly why a, a, a pre-tribulational perspective makes the most sense because they were always a seven-day feast. So we'll get into it. Maybe we'll spend a little time at the end of our broadcast today because, again, we just have so much information and 25 minutes goes by really fast. <laughs> Super fast. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Ford, I'll kick it off and just talk a little bit about some of the details and maybe you can interject some thoughts and from Sounds a biblical good. new covenant perspective on this because what I want to do is take it from a historical context and then we know that with the proper lens before us, we can then assess it and go, wow, that's why Jesus taught that way on that with that historical understanding. It was a cultural custom thing. So everybody would have understood it. At least many would have understood it from that time frame. But we all these years later, we maybe have missed why those two pieces connect the way they do right. and symbolize so much within the New Testament era. But as we look at it, let's start off with what's called the Shadukan. And that refers to the first step in a marriage process. It was all the uh, arrangements and preliminary details and illegal betrothal and so forth. It was all common in ancient Israel. Listen, for the father 
of the groom to go out and select a bride for his son. Okay, so this was an imperative in that. We see that in Genesis chapter 24. Abraham is seeking a bride for Isaac. This is where Rebekah comes into the, in the picture here. So we believe the servant, as I recall, is Eleazar. He sent forth representing the father, Abraham, who's desiring a bride for his son, Isaac. He goes forth, and I love the story, because there he's praying, and he hasn't even gotten into a posture off of his camel to pray, as we would expect one to pray, on his knees before God. Actually, he's riding into town, now walking next to his camel before he can even finish his praying. The Lord answers, there's Rebecca, right? We know how the story goes in Genesis chapter 24. But the interesting thing is he has to tell this young lady the the details from the father. He's got to issue the invitation. Here's who my son is, and his servant saying this about the father of his own son. Here's who the son is, Isaac. Let me tell you about him. Here's the invitation. Here's the request. He would like you to know his son and to be married to his son. So the messenger has to give the message of the father to this stranger, hoping she receives it, accepts it, and willingly comes to know the son, a, a man she's never even met. Will oh. she accept? And that's yeah. kind of what we see there in Genesis 24. <laughs> Will she or won't she, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting is you're talking about that. The one thing that kept coming to mind was, I believe it's John 6, where it says, no one can come unto the son unless the father draws him. Mm -hmm. So it's the same sort of thing. The father sending the invitation out, the father doing the choosing of the bride, all those sorts of things. It's just sort of interesting in line with other scripture that we see. Sometimes you might think that it's a separate issue, but yet as, as you're making a really good point, it's sort of all contained in one. That's right. And, and you know, what we see here, I love is the fact that she has to be a willing party in this. Right, definitely. So when we go out and we present the message of the king, and, and the Lord has instructed us with the great commission before us, we go forth in all the world and we give the gospel message. This is the hope. You can know the son. You've not seen him yet. You've not heard his voice. Right. But here's the invitation to come. Will you accept him? Will you be betrothed to another? Will you be set apart from this world and choose to follow him? And if you do, there is life eternal that awaits. And so we, the messengers likened to Eleazar, right, exactly. have almost this impossible task <laughs> it feels, if not for the Holy Spirit, by way of the Father, pressing upon the heart of someone to accept the invitation, we go forth with the invitation because Eleazar didn't know how she would respond. Right, sure. He just was being the obedient servant. Likewise, that's, right. that's what we do. We carry Amen. the invitation forward. So she has to accept. And we see that in Genesis 24, 57 to 59. And then they would go into the next step. It's called the ketubah. And the ketubah was written. That's what it means. Written. It's a marriage contract. It's basically saying, here's what the groom promises to do. And here's what the bride promises to do in that case it was sometimes financially related dowries and so forth but we see a lot of that described in verses 52 to 53 of genesis 24 and then they would discuss what's called the mohar that's the bridal payment okay so we see again verse 53 of genesis chapter 24 so again it's it's setting the terms to basically say that the groom is now going to take care the groom-to-be to take care of the bride and the rabbis would stipulate that the estate that the groom-to-be was going to prepare for the bride-to-be had to be better than her current estate. Isn't that true of Jesus Christ? Right. He's gone to prepare a place for us, and we know 
without a doubt, it <laughs> is better. far better than what we have right now. All that we could ask or imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, it would entail sometimes details about the family itself, but it would often be an estate that's attached to the father's house. Uh, sometimes it would just be an expansion of the estate or on the estate somewhere. But here's here's what the groom would basically say. Here is what I'm willing to do to in everything of my financial aspects and my preparation for you to be a part of my family. And he would lay it all out, spell it out. And of course, that's what the new covenant does. Mm-hmm. The Lord Jesus has spelled it out quite clearly. Here is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give of myself. I'm going to allow you to come and sit on my throne. I'm going to give you a position of authority where you will judge even the angels and you will be mine. And I'm going to give you an inheritance and a promise that I will keep even despite yourself, even though you fail, I will not. And he spells the whole thing out. It's the written agreement. And that's what ultimately the new covenant is. Now, they would then practice what was called the mikvah. This is the ritual immersion. Okay, this is the vividry, vivid imagery of the baptism that we partake in today. Some people just wonder, it's like, why do we get baptized? I was like, well, of course, we know the Bible's quite clear on why from the standpoint of, you know, it demonstrates being dead to self. You're dying to sin and you're coming out alive in Christ Jesus. And the old man is gone. The new has come. And it's very symbolic in all of that. Of course, we know by way of the thief on the cross, it's not a requirement of salvation. Christ has done all that was needed for salvation. However, it is a vital act of obedience. It's not a suggestion. If we have the ability to be baptized, we need to be. Now, of course, if we're hanging on a cross or in our deathbed and can't be baptized, we need not be worried that somehow our salvation is incomplete because we can't be immersed. But if we have the ability to be obedient, we need ought to always be obedient, especially in such a symbolic thing, because here's what would happen. The mikvah, which is this ritual immersion, would often occur separately. So the groom-to-be would be baptized, and the bride-to-be would be baptized, not necessarily together, sometimes together, but a lot of times it was separate. And what they would do, and we see this with Jesus Christ, he was baptized there in the Jordan River, and the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So he himself was already prepared beforehand for his bride-to-be. So he was already baptized, symbolized of purity and, and readied to be betrothed, yoked, ready to be a bride or a groom to his bride to receive her unto himself. And the bride likewise was then expected to do the same thing. She also would prepare herself to be baptized, to be fully immersed, not just sprinkled on, but completely dunked in that water coming out and symbolizing. She is now cleansed and now readied to be uh, yoked together as one flesh with her groom to be from that day forward forever, even though there was a betrothal period that was lasting at least a year. And she didn't really know. She knew it was getting close, but she didn't know how long. But they would be treated as though they were already wed. And we see that with Mary and Joseph, right? They were only in the betrothal period. And yet here, Joseph was looking to put her away quietly. It was treated almost like a divorce uh, because it was that serious, even though they weren't in the same household together, even though there was no sexual relations and they were completely separate and there was distance But during that period of distance, they were to be set apart, totally pure, loyal to each other, undivided. No suitor could come along, no temptation, no eyes for another. They had to be treated as though they were already married. And the community would treat it that way, too. Right. So they were holding them accountable to each other, even though they weren't in the same home. And you think about the distance we have right now with Jesus Christ. We're to be totally set apart. And we have to constantly keep before us. He bought us with himself. 
So when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're accepting the bridegroom terms. We're being baptized and saying, I am now ready as a bride to be with you forever. And there will be no other suitor, no other tempter. I only have eyes for you and I'm going to be set apart. He reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay, so that's the mohar that we have been bought and he gave his own life. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 tells us that. So we have given them back saying, we're set apart. We belong to you. Then they go through what's called the Yerosin, Yerosin, the betrothal itself. And this is where uh, so many amazing details come out. I mean, so not only have they gone through the mikvah, they meet together under a hoopah. <laughs> All these fun words. <laughs> hoopah is a canopy. And under that canopy, they would make vows to another. They would confess with their lips. They would make a declaration. We see that in Romans quite clear. With my words, with my mouth, I confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead and therefore we are saved. There is something verbal that happens and underneath the hoopah, that's exactly what would happen before all of a host of witnesses. They would verbally profess and confess that they are now in the betrothal period. They belong to another. They're going to be fully committed to the other. Here's what would happen. They would actually drink wine together and break bread together. They'd also exchange gifts. Sometimes they're like a ring. We do that today, an engagement ring or other gifts that would be given. And it would be a symbol to say that even though we're going to be apart for possibly a year, my heart is still with you. I am still with you, even though there is a distance here. <laughs> we could just see Jesus Christ all through this, right? He tells us in Matthew 26, 29, he says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. There on Passover, he was breaking the bread, drinking the wine. It was symbolic of his body that was about to be broken for us, his blood that would be spilled for us. But actually in this on Passover, which is so fitting coming out of the old covenant into a new covenant, new terms that were about to be established, written down for the church age, the bride of Christ, that in this, he was br breaking the bread and drinking the wine of this new covenant. And then he says, I'm not going to drink it again until we're together in my father's kingdom, because after those exchange of vows would be made under the hoopah, a time would go by a year in their customs. And then at the wedding feast, they would drink the wine again. It would symbolize then what was as a commitment is now a reality. And that's likewise for the wedding feast of the lamb for us. And so this matan that they would give, the bridal gift, they would exchange these gifts. And you think about the gift that Jesus Christ has given to us by way of his Holy Spirit, charismata. He has given us a gift to say, I am with you, though we are temporarily apart, I'm still with you. And that's the gifts that they would give to each other, so symbolic of the close proximity and yet the longing to be together as we long to be with Jesus Christ. And then they would have these responsibilities that would be outlined during the betrothal period. And we see that as a young groom has gone off to prepare a place, he tells us in John 14, two to three, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. And then we find that 
as was customary, the father would then determine the house is ready. Go and get your bride. So the bride during this time, she's having to get ready constantly, always ready, looking outward, knowing the time is close. Because I mean, think about it. If the custom says it was about a year to go and prepare the home and to, to finally have the wedding feast, they would know, okay, we're getting really close to the year. Likewise, as the sons of Issachar, we can understand the signs of the times and we know that we're getting close. I don't think there's anybody in the church that's telling the truth that's going through the Bible verse by verse and knows the truth and is going through it is it, I don't know that any one of them are saying, well, it's still quite some time in the distance. I think we're all feeling there's a close proximity. So the bride would know the bride to be would know that she's got to ready herself. And this is where the bridal party would get ready as well. And we, we see the bridal party that's trimming their lanterns. They're getting ready. Some were prepared and some were not. And they would know that the wedding feast is about to happen. The trumpets would sound. The groom's party would go forth take the bride, put her up on the shoulders on a chair, lift her up. And that's the lifting up and take her to be with her groom. And the interesting thing is since they wouldn't quite know, they'd have to be readied in expectation. Sometimes going, it could be at the midnight hour. We don't know. And the father would tell the young groom, go and get your bride. It's time to have a wedding. And the Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Yeah. Right. So even the Lord Jesus is deferring right back to that same custom to say, my father will declare the time. So not even the angels in heaven know. So no man can declare the date, but we do know that we're getting close. And so all of this is going on. She has received the gift. She knows it's coming up. The wedding is now about to take place. And that's the Nisuin. That's the marriage itself. And the interesting thing, Dr. Ford, it's meant the, the term of it means to carry. That's what the wedding means to carry. So the bride is carried away to go be with her groom. This is why the rapture perspective, the right rapture perspective is so important here because we, the bride of Christ are not, we're not looking to be escapism oriented people we're going to go through adversity we know that to follow christ is going to come with adversity but here we find that before the final shemitah cycle of the final seven years on earth like the jewish wedding where there are seven days it's likened to seven years on earth that we are with our groom in heaven for those full seven years come back according to revelation 19 in our new bodies to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in his newly built temple. And we see that in Daniel 12, where it's 1260 days for the tribulation period, another 30 days for the judgment of the nations, the separating of the sheep from the goats, and then another 45 days. So 75 days in total after the great tribulation is ended, in which the judgment takes place and the new Jerusalem is established. Not the one, the final new Jerusalem, mind you. We're not talking about the one that comes down from heaven at the end of the thousand years, but the Jerusalem that will be here for the millennial reign of Jesus Christ with this new glorious temple of Ezekiel 40 to 47. All of that's being built during those final 45 days. We're coming back with him. We're going to go into that. It says, blessed are those who go into this glorious reign of Jesus Christ. I mean, that that's exciting. So the, the wedding feast is listen Matthew 25 6 to 7 at midnight the cry rang out here's the bridegroom come out to meet him then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps they had to be ready because he could come at any moment and, and quite frankly you know there isn't another prophecy required for the groom to come and meet us in the air according to first Thessalonians 4 I mean that can happen at any moment 
And then right afterwards, the world will go through what is called the tribulation, followed by the great tribulation of the final seven years. That could happen at any time. And so I think, Dr. Ford, if you have any final thoughts for us here, I think I've consumed enough of our time because I just get giddy over this. That when we start <laughs> to see how all of the traditions that we hold within the New Testament church are actually, this is the backdrop that the Lord used and how fitting it is that the first miracle was there at the wedding feast yeah. where he turned water to wine. And all of this was always the plan. It was never reactive. Isaiah 56 had to be fulfilled of the Gentiles being saved. The church era was coming. The dispensation of the church era and, and, and millions, according to Revelation chapter seven, would be added from every tribe, tongue and nation and filling the presence of the Lord, giving glory to him is the true believers would do and ought to do. This is this is the backdrop yeah. we just talked about today. No, that's great. And you, you make a great point. Obviously, Jesus's first miracle recorded was intentional. Right. There's a reason, you know, he didn't raise somebody from the dead. He didn't heal somebody, you know, and those sort of things. He didn't have leprosy or someone who was lame, but he chose to turn water into wine, as you mentioned, as he looked forward to his bridal party and, uh, and actually the feast with his bride sometime in the future, also realizing everything that he was going to have to go through to get there mm. on our behalf. Amen. And you think about just how he transforms us, right? Just as he transformed that water that we were, that were dirty. We need to be made clean and, and new and ready as a bride, just like the apostle Paul, where he is eager for the church to be presented as without spot or wrinkle back to the, the right. groom who is coming for his bride. It's a beautiful imagery of, of all these things that we think about it and study in the gospel and the epistles. And yet what we find is it was actually very simple in the backdrop of, of it all. And the Lord Jesus is going to carry through every one of his promises. Praise be to God. I hope people have been encouraged today listening to this. If, if you like these notes, or maybe you want to learn more about this, of course, stay with us because next week we're going to talk more about the feasts of Israel as a point to the plan of God. But I hope you've been encouraged as you've studied this here with us today. You can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship, Fountain Valley Church, and services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays. We'd love to see you there. God bless you, my friends. Take care.